a great experience in their life, something's going really well, and they just start gushing forth with praise. You ever have a praise explosion in your life? You start thanking God for everything. And not only the great things, but the small things. And then there's the Psalms of Lament, where life just beats you down. You feel crushed in spirit by what's going on around you and inside of you. And you begin to cry out for mercy to God, and you wonder if he's even there. What we've discovered so far in the Psalms is that whether it's a psalm of lament or a psalm of praise, that these people had a deep passion for God and they would always find themselves back to God. They would always in adoration worship God. They would never forget who he was. So, Psalm 38, which you just heard, psalm of praise or psalm of lament? Yes, I'm of deep lament. When I asked Abby to do that psalm, she said, Pastor Bob, that's the most depressing thing I've ever read in my life. It's one of the seven penitent psalms where the psalmist is in such deep confession over the sickness and pain level that he's crying out to God. In fact, we're going to read one of the verses. The Hebrew says he's crying out like a roaring lion. Some of you did that in your BC days, right? Drinking all night, you cried out to the porcelain God, I'll never do this again. The psalmist here, deep turmoil. Ellen Davis, in her commentary of the Old Testament, said the cries of pain like this, that they're actually in the Bible, is one of the best kept secrets of the Christian faith. By the time we get through Psalm 38, you'll realize you'll never see this on Christian TV. It'll never fill up amphitheaters. You'll never raise money by preaching on texts like this. The psalmist just explodes explodes in lament and turmoil. He says God's arrows are piercing him. His loins are filled with inflammation. How many people have been in church for 30 years and never seen a text like this? I want Abby to read the text because until you understand the texture of a text, you can't understand the text. Words have texture, they have feeling, they have meaning. They're impregnated. All my life I've loved words. I love to talk about words. I love to read words. I love the spoken word. And I know there's a saying out there that a picture's worth a thousand words. I get it, right? But why is the book always better than the movie? And why didn't God give us a picture book? And why did Jesus become the word, not a picture? We don't even know what he looked like. Because words are powerful. They transport us to places we wouldn't normally go. Words have texture. And just like the cotton of a sweater or the leather on boots, we can feel them. And here in this psalm, we feel the deep anguish and lament. This is a prayer to God. It's not only a prayer, but because it's David, it's very poetic. Those with a poetic gift have a way to bring us to the depths of life we normally wouldn't go on our own. And we desperately need this. We need it because we live in a culture where our eyes get dim and our ears get dull because we see too much, and now in the information age, we know too much. You know, one minute on my cell phone, I get a push notification, 39 people died somewhere. The next minute, I'm texting guys, hey, what time's the ball game tonight? It's way too much information, way too much than we were ever supposed to handle. And our sensitivity gets dulled to the world around us. The psalmist drag us back to the reality of life. It's a wake-up call in many ways. They take us to the dark waters of human travail whose depths we really don't long to go. And in some ways, we all need to go here. Um, I like to hang around some of the younger folks in our church. I like to hang with them, discuss things with them, because I want to hear what they're feel, feeling as far as you know, church and life and God. And spend five minutes with them and they'll use two words, authenticity 
Man, we just want Christianity to be authentic. And the other word is real. We just want it to be real. And I always tell them, I said, look, I was your age one time. You don't think we wanted authenticity? We don't think we wanted it to be real? But we did the best we could, and you're going to do the best you could. Think back to the 60s. Those people wanted something real. They didn't want to live in the suburbs with manicured lawns. They wanted a cause to fight for. So half of them went to drugs and half of them went to Jesus, but they went somewhere. They wanted something real. But somewhere along the way of all of our journeys, comfort creeps in. Creeps in. It gets all of us. And somewhere along the line, we settle for a Christianity that's sanitized. We want it to be safe. We rarely talk about the consequences of, of sin or, or those type of topics, and we always gravitate towards God's benefits for us. This morning, we're going to look at the consequences of sin. What does the discipline of God look like? Now, when I say the word sin, it's even so strange to hear it in my own ears because it's been eradicated from the dominant culture. Film, newspapers, books, magazines. When was the last time you heard anyone say they sinned or they were a sinner? Almost never. Uh, it seems very odd or outdated. What starts to scare me is we don't hear it much in the church anymore. Here in the church, in our subculture, uh, believers, I think, have succumbed to the 50 years of a therapy culture. We're, we're like the proverbial frog that's been boiling in water. And today, in 2016, we have a lot of Christians who are seeking psychological ease rather than freedom that comes from eradicating sin in our lives. Yeah, I think we've bought into the, sub, into the dominant culture. Uh, I hear phrases all the time like, I want to feel comfortable in my own skin. And we all make mistakes. Uh, we're only human. Sometimes we play the victim card, the way we were raised, dysfunctional family, raised in poverty, all these different things. Psalm 38 is going to help us discover one of the great freedoms of life, one of the great spiritual disciplines is the confession of sin. And we're going to see it here through the life of David, how freeing it really is. So in the next 20 minutes, I want to talk about the consequence of sin the sorrow over sin, and the contrition of sin. Psalm 38, the consequence of sin, the sorrow over sin, and the contrition of sin. Let's start with sin's consequences. Before I get to the text, we have to answer the question, what is sin? Um, some Bible student might say, missing the mark, and that would be the correct answer. I like the Hebraic form of transgression. It means to wander off the path. I was in West Virginia this week with some leaders in our men's ministry. We were scouting out a future trip uh, down to West Virginia. And we were hiking a very steep mountain. And, and I always wonder how they created the pass that you hike on. And I realized the National Park System and rangers, you know, did a lot of that. I thought to myself, I bet you these paths were well-worn before they ever got there. Someone long ago figured out the right path to go where you would avoid wildlife and cliffs and things like that. And the Bible says that the Christian life is just like that. Psalm 1 said, there's a path sinners are on, and it's not good. Jesus said, there's a path that leads to life, and it's narrow, and there's a path that leads to death, and it's wide. And the Bible talks about the right path to be on. Now, if you take the Mere Christianity class Wednesday, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He tries to talk to skeptics without using the Bible, saying that sin is universal, there's a universal idea that there's right and wrong in our world. You know, if you see somebody lying in a ditch, bleeding, one part of your brain says, I need to help this person, they're in need. The other part of your brain says, no, you need to flee because you might get in trouble if you help them. 
But Lewis argues that the right thing to do always dominates your mind. Every culture knows things are just wrong. They might not know why. If you rape a woman, it's just wrong. It's the wrong path. So what is sin? It's diverting from the path. Augustine, in his famous confessions, said that he used to steal pears in his youth. He would walk over an orchard and he would steal pears. Later in life, he pondered why, because he didn't even like pears. And his answer was, they were forbidden. It's the same thing that Eve fell for. God said, you could eat of all the trees. Just that one, and she had to have it. In The Prince of Tides, Barbara Streisand's laying in bed with Nick Nolte, and Nick Nolte says, if adultery is so wrong, why does it feel so right? To which Barbara Streisand said, that's why they made it a sin. I'll bet you never heard Barbara Streisand and Augustine in the same message before. <laughs> but if you put it together, it really gives us the picture of sin, doesn't it? The Bible's very clear. Hebrew says sin is pleasurable for a season. It doesn't hide that fact. In fact, when it comes to sexual immorality, Proverbs says that you should drink from your own cistern, but stolen water is sweet. The Bible's very clear. Sin's pleasurable for a season. But how would you like to be in my shoes for 23 years? I've looked at the face of people that have gone through adultery. Their face looks like cracked glass. I've seen the kids. I've seen the breakdown of the family. It's not a pretty picture. It's only pleasurable for a season. It only feels good for a while. Augustine said that at the core of our being, there's a struggle. There's a trigger inside every one of us that's saying, I want no limitations on my life. I want to live the way I want to live, and I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. Isn't that what Adam and Eve, God said, you could have all these trees? And as a loving father, he set borders and boundaries, just like we do with our kids, but they had to have the forbidden fruit. David's a textbook case, if you've ever read his story in the Old Testament. The lust of the eyes, he saw this beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and he had to have her. It says, at a time when men went to war, the spring of the year, David stayed home. This was premeditated. And I don't think he saw Bathsheba one time. I think he saw her many times, and he planned to see her this time when no one was around. He wanted to have her sexually, the lust of the flesh, and then he killed for her. He killed her husband, the pride of life. He used all his resources to cover his sin. The consequences are in the psalm. Look at verse three. It's unbelievable. He said, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all day long. My loins are full of inflammation. Sexually transmitted disease. Um, some people think David had leprosy. We're not sure. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. David was really, really sick. And he was so sick, he comes to the realization that this is a part of my sin. God has made me sick. This is God's discipline. Now, we need to be careful here. Because there's teaching out there in the Christianity that says, if you're sick, it's because you've sinned. And that's not true. Uh, that's why the book of Job's in the Bible. Job had boils all over himself. 
But we're told in Job chapter 1, verse 8, that Job was blameless and upright, a man who feared God and shunned evil. And his friends told him, Job, you got to confess, you got to come clean. This is happening. You're reaping what you've sown. And Job knew that wasn't true. And 90% it's not true of us. But this time David said, this is the hand of God. Verse 3, he said, this is my sin. Verse 5, this is my foolishness. This is my heart, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 11, the Corinthian church was famous for fornication, famous for um, not caring for the poor, the gifts were out of line, the sexual immorality, and even at the communion table, they weren't caring for one another. And Paul said, that's why some of you are sick and weak. And so the question becomes, why would God ever treat his children this way? And the answer is that discipline is part of love. Any of you who have children know this to be true. Because you love your children, you set boundaries and borders for them. And when they go awry, you discipline them. The opposite of love is just to abandon someone, to be indifferent, to not care. I shared with you last week that when I went through my four-month illness, that God made me lay down. I realized, like an athlete who had blown his knee out, that God put me down. That my condition wasn't caused by God, but God used it in my life to cry out to him. James Montgomery Boyce said sometimes God will use sickness in our life to make us realize that we have unconfessed sin. When I went through my situation, I met with a counselor. He said, Bob, I've known you for a long, long time. I've got to ask you this question. Is there major sin in your life. And I said, you know, if you didn't ask me that question, you wouldn't be a good counselor. But no, there's no major sin in my life. But it's something you have to ask. You ever have the flu, 24-hour flu, virus, sinus infection, just laying there? Uh, guys moan, right? Oh, you moan all day, right? And while you're there, you can't watch TV, you're so sick, you just lay there, you start thinking about your life. Oh God, if I ever get off this bed, I'll be a better dad, a better a better husband, I'll be a better pastor. You know, God, oh, this is so terrible. Sometimes you get put down for self-reflection. James Boyce said, sometimes God wants to trim the rough edges of my personality, make me more Christ-like, more compassionate. And then another, another point could be that God wants to bring glory to himself. The disciples said, who sinned that this man was born blind? Jesus said, neither. It's way above your pay grade. You, you can't look at life like that. However, that God might get glory, he healed the man. David knew this was the judicial discipline of God for the sin he had committed. Pro Proverbs 3, verse 11 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, his son. So if you're a Christian this morning, there's going to be times of correcting. And it doesn't feel good in the present, the New Testament says, but when we go through the process, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. David realized this is the consequence of my sin. I and I only have sinned. But I think what made David the man after God's own heart is his sorrow over sin. We tend to wink at sin today. Again, the dominant culture's trained us, right? Like, you know, okay, I'll say a quick, quick few prayers, I'll get over it. No, David had deep, deep sorrow over sin. Look at verse eight. 
He said, I am feeble and broken, and I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Uh, the, the Jewish Bible says, I have roared beyond the roaring of a lion. When was the last time you walked around howling because of a sin you've committed? There's a pastor of a well-known church, over 20,000 in attendance. They had just affected their community, the world, a stellar church. One day I get a text message. Their pastor had committed infidelity. I almost threw up in my car. And the board put him out as they should have, and they went through a horrific time. About a year later, a ministry colleague of mine met up with this pastor. He had come out of uh, that particular ministry, and I said, what did he say it was like? You know what that pastor said? He said, take all the classic texts in the Bible about sin and anguish, read Samson, read David, read them all, and then multiply it by 100, and that's how I feel. You think that guy had a couple nights where he was howling in disbelief of all that he lost? This is what sin can do to each and every one of us. David goes on in verse 9. He said, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. Do you ever have your heart pant? Deep anxiety. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes, they're gone. My loved ones, my friends, stand aloof because of this plague. David lost his mighty men, his family. I don't know if he had leprosy or, or some kind of disease, but you know how people started trading away from you? No one wants to be around you. David had lost everything he loved. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction. They're planning my deception all day long. I'm like a deaf man. This man who 10,000 songs and psalms, he's like a mute, can't open his mouth. I'm like a man who does not hear, and in my mouth there is no response. Deep, deep sorrow over his sin. And then the heart of the matter is David's confession of his sin. This is what made him the mighty man of God. His contrition before God is what made him the man after God's own heart. Now, for those of you who are Catholic, you know two things very well. You know all about guilt, and you know all about contrition, okay? Uh, no one knows guilt like Catholics, and no one knows contrition. In fact, we had a sacrament called the Act of Contrition. It was confession. And um, we would go to confession and um, confess our sins before God. Contrition, Ellen Davis says, means finding the courage to let your heart break over sin and then willfully letting your heart break and offering the pieces back to God. Isn't that interesting? Now, that never happened to me in the Catholic Church. But basically, I would wait in line thinking up sins, like, oh, man, I lied ten times, I stole, I did this and that. And then that, that door would open, and I would freeze, and I would forget everything I was supposed to say. <laughs> but this idea of having deep sorrow and letting your heart break, this idea of uh, get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, God, I confess all my sins, sometimes we get off the path seriously. We've really harmed someone else in a deep way. And that heartbreak may be for a long time. And you got to let your heart break. And you got to offer the pieces to God because where else are they going to go? 
So many Christians say, I want to live a countercultural lifestyle. I want to be radical. This is radical. Confession of sin is radical. David was radical before God. The weight of his guilt was on him. Like I said, Catholics know a lot about guilt. You know there's such thing as a good guilt? We have a conscience. We have the word of God. Our minds are renewed. There's a good guilt. It makes us feel broken, but we can't take that weight upon us. We have to give it back to God. David come to, came to the realization in Psalm 51 when he said, against you and you only have I sinned, God. And I've always read that and I think, well, wait a second. He sinned against Bathsheba. Uriah lost his life. Um, the people suffered under David's leadership. So many people were wronged by David's sin. How could he say, I've sinned against you and you only, God? And I think David realized he could probably patch a lot of those things up. But the one thing he couldn't gain back was God's presence. He said, don't let your Holy Spirit leave me. Now, how does confession free us from sin? People ask crazy questions, and they're good questions. Like, well, if God already knows you're going to ask them, what's forget all those semantics. And let's just hone in on where freedom comes from. I read this one time from uh, Frederick William Faber, and it changed my view of confession, he said, there is a wideness in God's mercy. It's as wide as the sea. God's mercy is unimaginably wide. Indeed, too wide, he said, for us to take in. God's mercy is wide, he said, but our hearts are narrow. They have been constricted by sin. For it is ever the nature of sin to turn us in on ourselves rather than opening us outward towards God and others. He said, let our hearts break before God because the pieces don't float into oblivion. They float up to a merciful God who is full of loving kindness and mercy and willing to restore us. See the relationship there? See the relationship there? There is a God whose mercies are as wide as the sea. And when our brokenness comes, we take this broken heart and the pieces flow up to God. And that's exactly what David does here. If you look at Psalm 51, you look at any of these penitent psalms, David wants no part of self-pity. David's not walking around saying, oh my gosh, I was the king, I was chased by Saul, this happened and that happened, and I deserve Bathsheba. You know, some people have told me that over the years. Well, my wife wasn't meeting my needs, and my husband wasn't meeting my needs, and I've done this, and I've lived with this person all these years, and, and all these excuses, David never goes there. Nor does he get in the self-flagellation. He's not beating himself up. Because both of them feel good. Self-pity feels good. Self-flagellation feels good. Do you know what David says? It's classic. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and uphold me in your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. David said, I'm going to teach another generation that they would never come down this path. And by the way, he signs it off to the chief musician. A man who had covered his sin for an entire year says, hey, put this to music and sing it to everybody. Because I don't want anybody to ever feel what I felt. I don't want God's presence ever to be taken away from me. Now what makes confession possible? In no other religious system are you ever assured of forgiveness. 
How did David know he was forgiven? Some people would say, well, he had the sacrificial system. He could see the morning and evening offering. He could see the smoke going up. He knew he was, his sins were atoned for. They had the day of atonement, etc. But David was smart enough to know they were temporary. Turn to Romans chapter 4, where Paul gives us great insight. Romans chapter 4, and he says, what shall we say of Abraham, our father after the flesh? So Abraham predates Judaism. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? That Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was saved by grace. He was looking forward to what God would provide. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who, who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Verse 6 says, just as David also described the blessedness of the man who God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he quotes Paul from Psalm 32, blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. David's sins were covered the same way our sins were covered. In a way, I think David could only see in form, but he couldn't understand the fullness. When the angels came to Bethlehem, they announced there was one born that day, a Savior. Jesus. He'll save his people from his sins. And when that rang out, it was what the nation of Israel was longing for. The salvation of sins. To be covered. Jesus, when he hung on the cross and died for us, it's so familiar to us, it's hard to understand. Jesus could not have died any other way that it would reveal true forgiveness. Had he been hung, stoned, you know, firing squad, any other way, electric chair, would not have given us the reality of what he accomplished. It had to be crucifixion. That's why Galatians says he came in the fullness of time, the exact right time. Because to be crucified means to be stripped. He was naked. Crown of thorns, exposed. You know, when Adam sinned, he was naked. He hid and covered himself. That's what we do when we sin. We plan the cover-up. Jesus did no wrong and was exposed. Naked. Left out in front of everyone completely exposed and cried out Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Now you gotta turn one more time and this is where it gets great. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Says for the law, verse one, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? Why did Jesus come? We'll just keep offering sacrifices. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, so Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. And in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And then finally, therefore, verse 19, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Jesus became man that he might become the final sacrifice because bulls and goats would never do it. And now you and I, in a way David never could, can boldly enter the throne of grace. Hearts broken over sin, knowing that God would wash them white as snow. Why? Because he loves us. He's chastening us. And he wants to make us more like his son. What a beautiful, beautiful story of redemption God has given us. So I can't ask, finish the service without asking you a couple questions. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Deep sin? The only reason I ask is I have a friend who was a Christian and decided on a Friday night that he was going back into the world. He felt like he was missing out on a good time. And he was in church on Sunday, and he said, Bob, I'm sitting in that pew. And he goes, I knew tomorrow I was out. David hid his sin for a year. Is there any unconfessed sin? Because I want you to know there's a God whose mercy is this wide. And it's not just, well, I'm going to do it and then ask God for sin. That's not sorrow. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Have you wronged somebody deeply? You may never make it right with them. Maybe you can't even get on the phone with them. Maybe it's so estranged. But you can get down before God and say, God, man, I have wronged this person. I have, I've been terrible in this situation. And God, I just, let your mercy come upon me. Is confession a regular part of your walk with Jesus? Is it a spiritual discipline? Do you keep short accounts with God? David was never the same man. He never ruled Israel. He never built the temple. He never did all the things he wanted to do. And yet he's the man after God's own heart. He never went to an idol. He never blamed God. He went through this whole ordeal not as a skeptic, but as a believer. And he came out the other side as a greater man. God didn't want him to go through all of it, but once he did, God took him through to the other side. And God doesn't want any of us to go through. In fact, this is a great warning, a psalm of remembrance. Don't do what I've done. Live out your days. Love God. His mercy is as wide as the waters. Father, we thank you for the honesty of Scripture. We thank you for men like David who reveal the pain and suffering of sin, the reality of life and the things that we go through. Lord, we're all on a different journey. 
The beauty is we walk together. And Lord, we're going to go through these seasons. And God, we just need to remember your mercy. Lord, when we came to you, you didn't condemn us, but you loved us. And Lord, you want to put us on paths that lead to righteousness. Lord, that's, that's the path we want to be on. God, we want to be about your business. Renew a right spirit in us, God. We want to be in your presence. We want a, a real Christianity, God. And Lord, I pray we would be countercultural. Not in being relevant to the culture, Lord, but showing them what dependence upon you really looks like. That we do have the courage to offer our broken hearts to you. Because you're a God that cares. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing this song together. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice, we're hanging on every word. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we want to know you more and more, we're hanging on every word. Come and speak to us, O oh Lord. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice. We're hanging on every word. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we want to know you more and more. We're hanging on every word. Because when you speak and when you move, when you do what only you can do, it changes us. It changes what we 